Thank you for the wonderful truths from your word in our study today. I pray that you would help us to be obedient to them and to apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a new pastor who was visiting in the homes of those who attended the church. And at one of the houses, it was obviously that somebody was home. And even though he kept knocking, nobody came to the door. So he just took out his business card and wrote Revelation 3.20 on the back. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So, (laughs) clever. Then uh, on Sunday morning, when the offering was taken, he found his card back in the offering plate. It had been returned, and it said Genesis 3.10. So he looked it up and it said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid for I was naked. (laughs) And they were off to a good start. (laughs) Well, the Bible frequently refers to believers as sheep. Uh, There's a good reason for this because there's so many similarities between us as sheep and as God's children. Sheep are prone to wander. They often consume things that are not good for them. They are vulnerable, they are defenseless when left on their own, and they have a great need to have a shepherd to be responsible for their care. As you recall, this entire letter was written during the time of great persecution and great suffering for the church. And in such trying times, believers are in a need of godly, strong shepherds who look out for their souls and try to protect them from Satan and his attacks. Sheep are vulnerable, as I said, and need a shepherd to provide for them and to look out for their safety. And this is why Peter is now going to give a charge to the elders or shepherds as he exhorts them in their role of leading the flock of Jesus Christ. It's probably best to give some definition of terms that are used interchangeably in Scripture regarding church leaders. An elder indicates the dignity of the office, that of someone being a mature believer, worthy of respect. These are the Lord's appointed and gifted leaders who oversee the church of Jesus. Sometimes they're referred to as a bishop, which deals with the work of a pastor as an overseer. Other times they're called a shepherd, which is referring to the role as one who feeds the sheep, one who protects the sheep. So elders are always plural, indicating that there is to be more than just one man overseeing and feeding the flock. Every believer must if they're obedient, must be a part of a local church and be a part of the leadership under the leadership there. So we begin with qualities of a godly pastor. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble." So therefore, again, as always, because they put a chapter division, so therefore, based on what he just said in chapter 4, that those receiving this letter were suffering persecution, they were being attacked for their godliness, that these sheep needed encouragement. And so Peter exhorts the spiritual leaders, the elders, the shepherds, to remind them of the importance of their role. 
he reminds them that he was a fellow elder who had seen the witness and witnessed the suffering of Jesus as well as seeing him in all his glory at the transfiguration. As mentioned before, Peter is writing to a plurality of men, the spiritual leaders who were to oversee the flock, and the word pastor then is the word shepherd, as I said before, pointing to their role as feeding and teaching God's word to the sheep. Having a plurality, plurality of leaders helps the church from not being dominated by one man. With a plurality of men that are gifted by God uniquely for their specific gifts, they have a greater means of leading the sheep, protecting the sheep, counseling the sheep, being there for them. So it's a safeguard to have many qualified men serve together the body of Jesus. Peter understood the challenges of being a shepherd, and he writes to them as understanding. So there's a future glory awaiting every believer, we know that, and there is a special reward for shepherds who have served the Lord faithfully. So who are those being shepherded? He's wrote, the flock of God among you. So that is the church of Jesus Christ, whom he bought with his own blood. The sheep are precious to the Savior, and he loves them. The pastor then is to lead the sheep where they can be fed, and it's demanding that the pastor himself be able to feed the people of God's own word, uh, feed himself and feed them. Therefore, a pastor is not, contrary to much of what you see on TV, is not a storyteller, is not a motivational speaker, but rather one who is diligent in his study of the word, who is a steward of the gifts God has given him so that he can equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So how is shepherding done? A shepherd exercises oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. In other words, a man isn't in ministry because his parents want him to be, or his church, they watched him grow up and said, this is what you need to do. He is not under obligation due to pressure from people. Rather, it is the call of God on his life so that he really can't do anything else. If a man can find contentment and peace in any other line of work, then that is what he should stick with. He is not called to shepherd. This is never to be done for sordid gain, nor to get money, or for the love of having some type of power or position. How many in history, as well as today, use the ministry to take advantage of God's people, to manipulate the church, to bleed believers of their money for personal material advantage, or to just build a name for themselves and their ego. The call is to be a shepherd to the flock of God. And this means the church doesn't belong to the man. It has been purchased with the blood of Jesus, and believers are the sheep of his pasture. A pastor is only an under-shepherd who looks out for the chief shepherd's sheep. That's really a tongue twister, this whole thing I've just said. So they are to be good stewards, but they are not the owner. Therefore, verse 2 says, pastors shepherd because God's called them to do this. They simply respond in obedience with a desire to shepherd, doing it with eagerness, and it's to be done with joy. Verse 3, there's to be no lording it over the people by any shepherd. There is to be no oppressive or intimidating leader. That is a complete perversion of this office. The sheep belong to the Lord and are bought with his blood. They are allotted to the care of under shepherds who love the sheep, serve the sheep, feed the sheep, help the sheep grow. Clearly, elders are responsible then to minister to God's sheep and never use them for personal gain or for some reason for their own ego. A godly shepherd serves the church 
He does not dominate it. A shepherd or elder is to be an example of how to follow Jesus. Regardless of degrees one or one might not have or credentials, what matters is their walk with the Lord. One can't help but think of Diotrephes, who Paul mentions, who loves to be first. An elder is one who demonstrates humility like Jesus and is a servant to the flock. He is not full of himself. And for those who faithfully serve the flock by feeding them and protecting them and leading them, there is a very special reward for them one day. We read in verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. The word used for crown here speaks of the victory, uh, often in the Greek athletic games, and can also be a military uh, valor getting a crown of, for that reason. But here we read that it's given to faithful shepherds of the flock of God. The Lord is going to evaluate the ministry of each elder at the judgment seat of Christ, and they will receive an unfading crown of glory. This reward from the Lord will only be given to those pastors who fulfill their role as a biblical shepherd, those who were uh, shepherded with proper motivation in their ministry and were servants in their hearts. I suspect many pastors are going to be greatly surprised when they stand before Christ at the Bema seat and all of their works are burned up like straw because they were not faithful servants. This unfading crown will not be like a crown that fades or rusts or dies quickly like a wreath. The rewards will be in direct proportion to leadership and faithfulness. Whether he shepherded 50 people or thousands of people, the issue is not that, it's faithfulness. So how do you evaluate the ministry or spiritual leader where you go? We live in a culture where there are so many other things that have taken over the priority of God's word being taught. People would rather feel good about themselves, thus a motivational speaker, or feel emotionally stirred by music, or like to be entertained. At least don't make us listen to more than 15 minutes. But that's not God's plan for his church. He's calling faithful, qualified men to lead his sheep. This verse then is an encouragement for those in ministry to keep on keeping on, even when weary, even when discouraged, because one day the chief shepherd will appear and he will reward faithful service to those who have been faithful to him. And that brings us to the importance of submission. This is a theme we've seen again and again in our study. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. So having just addressed the church leaders, now Peter turns his attention to the attitude of the sheep. Just as the elders or shepherds are to submit to the chief shepherds, so the flock is to submit to their shepherds. This is not a new subject. We've seen submission to the government, submission to your boss. If you're married, submission as a wife to your husband. Just as God has instituted the office of uh, ministry of a pastor, so believers are to be submissive then to that leadership. There is no place in the church for self-promotion or pride. And maybe there were some young men that Peter was talking to who really didn't care for the command to be subject to the elders. Perhaps they were young men in training to be elders themselves or men who were tempted to think that they had all the answers. The one who thinks they know everything about the Christian life and knows the Bible in and out, are often found in Bible schools and seminaries. Uh, there is always the danger of pride when there is much knowledge. Peter makes it clear that elders are spiritual leaders of the church, and the members of the church, especially young 
people are to give honor and respect to their spiritual leaders. So learning submission really is the key to being spiritually mature. If there's no submission, the ministry is difficult, if not impossible to do. Scripture makes it clear that failure to submit to spiritual leaders is actually unprofitable and harmful, according to Hebrews 13, 17 and 1 Thessalonians 5. It speaks to this, as God intended that elders would lead properly, they would have servants' hearts, and that people would willingly submit. When the church is attacked by persecution from without or from within, the elders must lead and hold things together. But if people aren't willing to follow their leadership, the result, you know, it has to be chaos, confusion, disorder, lots of pain, lots of hurt, lots of heartache. And many of you have walked through those experiences. Well, having an attitude of submission isn't limited to church leaders. We read in verse 5 that all of us are to clothe ourselves in humility. This speaks of a slave's apron who washed the feet of others, just like Jesus did for his own disciples. If the church is to hold together when attacked by the enemy, then they must be believers who are willing to submit to each other. There is to be a lowliness of mind willing to do the most menial task for the sake of someone else. That's what our Savior did for us. So Peter quotes Proverbs 3.34, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Not a hard verse to memorize. One I think we need to have in the forefront of our brains. God is opposed. He is against the proud. It gives grace to the humble. We, when we are proud, we think we always know the right way. And you know this is how our pride comes out in our driving. We know best. In our cooking, in our cleaning, in our you name it, in whatever. We know the right way. We've done this, and we know better. And it really is our pride. And that's when the Lord is opposed to us. Our pride sets us against God and God against us. I think this ought to motivate us to be women who consciously, momentarily, daily, daily humble ourselves, whether it's in your home with your husband or children, in the place you work, or in any ministry at church or rubbing shoulders with other believers in Christ. How many believers, I wonder, have lived their entire lives or lives for decades with God opposing them, and they don't even know it? This Old Testament has the same principle. Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So what does he despise? The opposite. Because of this important reality, Peter then reminds us in verse 6, humble yourselves. This is your act under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. You don't have to open your mouth every time. You don't have to tell everybody the wrong way they're doing it. The truth is when, how that when we humble ourselves, that's when God gives us grace. The grace we need when we face persecution, when we face struggles, conflicts, how many of us have not had his grace in situations in our lives because of our pride, our self-focus, and we don't even know it? I know life is just a bit too difficult to live having God being opposing to me, and I'm sure you feel the same way. God sets himself against the proud, against those who think they're better than other people. 
Humility was a foreign concept in Peter's day, and I'll tell you, it's a pretty foreign concept in our day. People don't want to be humble and serve others. They want people to serve them and do it well and do it perfectly and do it when they want it to be done. However, the people of God are to be completely different. We're to be like our Savior. We are to be obedient to his word that tells us to humble ourselves. That's every minute of the day. That's every day of the week. This requires action on our part. You cannot be neutral on this. We must think clearly of our position before the Lord. We are all sinners. There is no one better than anyone else sitting here in this room. We are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. This was an Old Testament term used to express God's controlling guidance in the lives of people. Peter is telling these believers not to fight the sovereign hand of God, even when it brings testing in your life. We are not to be impatient with God and all that he is allowing in our lives. He's doing it to mature us and often to humble us. These believers were being humbled by the suffering and persecution that they were enduring. And Peter exhorts them to react towards these sufferings in a way that honors God and to be submissive to the discipline God was using to make them humble. I mean, if we really honestly pray, Lord, help me to be more godly, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, he is going to bring difficult people and situations in your life just to do that thing you prayed for. And whether you pray or not, he's still going to do it. <laughs> the sovereign God of the universe is at work in and through the experiences he brings into our lives. He often uses the church leadership when we're part of our church to help us in the midst of that. Sometimes there is deliverance, and we don't deserve it. And sometimes it's all about him just testing us, see the strength of our faith. Sometimes it's chastening, it's his discipline, but it is God who is accomplishing his eternal purpose in the lives of his children. So there's comfort and joy knowing that at the proper time, God will exalt his own who are suffering with trials and tribulations. God has a purpose for every little thing. There will be a time when God lifts those who are humble and submissive and will deliver them up out of it all. Our lives are filled with difficulty. Anxiety tends to be the default move that we do. But now Peter makes a clear command about what believers are to do when we humble ourselves, when we submit. What are we supposed to do then with the anxieties that come our way? Verse 7, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Another short verse to memorize. Anxiety comes from so many sources. I'm reminded of a favorite verse. I usually put in cards, Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden, literally, what he has given you upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. To cast means to throw something on or something uh, on someone else. And we're told here to cast on the Lord all of our anxiety, all our pain, all our disappointment, all our frustration, all our despair, all our suffering, all of our questions, all of our fears of the unknown, all of it, we're to cast on him. He is the one we can trust because he is always good, always loving, always wise, always sovereign, always has a purpose in our pain, you know it's never for nothing. This is the truth, whether we feel like it or not. 
Our emotions do not dictate truth. How we feel does not determine truth. God's word is determines what is true. And we need to dedicate more of our thinking, ladies, about how much he actually cares for us. Anything that concerns you concerns him. When we trust ourselves and we think we have it figured out how to best deal with this situation, whether it's money, whether it's relationships, whatever it is, and we, we, we come up with the plan, we are being the opposite of humble. Humble says, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I, I can't do this. We are lifted up with pride, thinking that we know the best thing to do. And if you're his child, then you know what? He is, you are his concern. He allows humbling events to come into our lives. He allows difficulties and trials in order to make us more like Jesus. And he has everything ordered and under control. And he has us in his care. Just reread Matthew 6, the end of it, where Jesus talks about he knows when every tiny bird falls dead to the ground. He knows every hair on your head, which, you know, that's a change daily thing. Coming out in places you don't want, coming in in places you don't want. I don't know what to say. But he knows every hair on our head. And he tells us in that passage, do not worry. So next, Peter is going to jump into the truth about being spiritually alert. You know, it's really tied in because we have an enemy who his goal is to have you in a fit of of worry at all times. So you're useless. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have been exhorted to be submissive, to be humble, with trust in the Lord because we have spiritual opposition from our enemy, Satan. We must be on the alert. We must be watchful. We must be aware. We must be awake spiritually. If you're not continually thinking and aware that every day of your life you are in a battle, a spiritual battle, then you're going to lose most of those battles. If you're not even engaged in the fact that you're in a war right now, even in your mind and what you're thinking about, you're not going to win. Whether it is your own home, Whether it's your church, your work, your free time, your entertainment, there is never a moment you can let down your guard. There are three words given that characterize our enemy. Uh, Adversary, which means an opponent. He is aggressive. He is relentless. The devil, he is vicious enemy of God and all God's people. He is a slanderer, the false accuser. He's a liar. He wants you to believe his lies. He's a murderer. And a roaring lion, like a fierce beast that's hungry for prey. Our opponent, Satan, is hungry to, as one person put it, overwhelm us, sow discord, to break fellowship by malicious suggestions. One other other author put it this way. He accuses God to men, men to God, and men to each other. His goal, then, is to confuse and overwhelm and discourage believers, especially those experiencing difficulties, trials, persecution. He desires to destroy your marriage, your unity in the church you're a part of, unity in your extended family, your ministry to people. He wants to devour you and will use whatever means necessary to set a snare for you to think wrong thoughts about your situation in life. Satan and his host of demons who do his bidding work through human agents to bring despair, destruction, discouragement. It may be a direct attack such as Job experienced. It may be an allurement to be sucked into sinful behavior. 
It may be within marriage regarding intimacy. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 7 when he talks about do not deny one another sexual intimacy because Satan, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So when one spouse withholds intimacy from their spouse, you can believe Satan will be right there to tempt the deprived one with sin. His goal is to destroy every Christian marriage. And so what must we do? Stand firm, but resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So the word resist means to to withstand, to be firm against someone else's onset. We are not to pursue Satan. When he comes to us, we are to resist him. I I mean, people think because they tell him, go to the pit of hell, he's going to go, oh, okay. I don't think so. We are to resist him. That's how we respond. Remember, we are commanded in Ephesians 6.11 to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The word firm refers to that solid front line of an army like the Greek army who walked very close in their infantry, close ranks, and very deep. So as we resist Satan, we are to be firm in our faith. As I said, he doesn't run away from us because we speak to him, but because we are firm in our Christian faith, we are living according to the word of God. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He, of anyone who could have said, go to the pit, it's him. But he endured temptation by responding with appropriate scripture. And then Satan left for a time. Peter continues by reminding us that the same terrible experiences that believers face while in the midst of suffering are being experienced by others around the world. We are not alone. The term are being accomplished suggests that these afflictions afflictions are continuing to occur in other people's lives just as they are in yours in order to accomplish something that has not yet been accomplished. So even in the difficult battles, the purpose is to perfect and mature us in our faith. Scripture tells us Satan is a liar and a deceiver, and so we're in this real spiritual battle the moment you wake up, just as believers all around the world are, just as all the believers sitting around you in this room. We are in a spiritual battle, and God allows painful tests in our lives And that is to perfect the work he is doing in our lives. And you know what? This is the good news. The test will not last forever. Verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God who has called us to eternal glory also cares for our every need, every moment of the day, And after we have suffered for a little while, not 30 years, not 80 years, not for eternity, for a little while, it will end one day. But in that process of suffering, it is God accomplishing great things in the lives of his children. Ladies, you know, there is just no shortcut to God building character into your life. Wouldn't you like to take a pill for this? Make a a wand, godly, you know? But that's not how it is. You can't learn to forgive unless you're wounded. You can't learn to trust the impossible unless you're in an impossible situation. You, these are things you could only learn as your faith is stretched. It's through suffering that he perfects. That's the idea of mending your life so that you are equipped to be useful for him. 
It's through suffering that he confirms or makes you solid like a rock of granite. It's through suffering that he will strengthen you or fill you with strength that only comes from him. And it's through suffering that he will establish you, settle you on the foundation of Jesus. Because when the world is upside down and twirling, the place you need to land your spiritual feet is on the rock. This is all the work that God is doing in and through us. And in the midst of the heat of the crucible, of suffering. We need to remember what Romans 8.18 reminds us, that suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So ladies, every battle, every struggle, every sorrow that you face, God is working in your heart, in your life, to produce great strength of character in your life and faith. I have a quote from F.B. Meyer, who said this, never run from suffering, but bear it silently, patiently, and submissively with the assurance that it is God's way of instilling iron into your spiritual life. Your iron crown of suffering precedes your golden crown of glory, and iron is entering your soul to make you strong and brave. So he uses the process of humility, submission, all of these things, attacks to grow us. And unless our faith is tested, like I said, how could it grow? <clears throat> we can stand confidently firm in the truth of Scripture all the way home to glory. So in response, how can we not fall down and worship this great God of ours? And that's what Peter said. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You and I can trust him with every minute detail of our lives. Everything that causes you anxiety. That's what he wants you to take and throw on him him. He has it. He's got it. You know, you and I were never made in the image of God, never in these bodies to be equipped to carry anxiety. We just, you know the toll it takes on all of us. I'm speaking a much greater message than I often obey. And we all know the impact and how, what it does to our bodies. And the Lord loves us. He wants what's best for our bodies. He cares about our bodies. And he's telling you, throw that anxiety on me. Peter concludes his letter, speaking of Silvanus, who had written down what Peter dictated to him in this letter. He would have also carried the letter to the church. It appears now that Peter's writing these last verses in his own handwriting. Peter commends Silvanus as a faithful brother. He summarizes his letter by saying he wrote, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It is the grace of God, ladies, that enables us to have victory in the midst of all sorts of trials or being unjustly attacked. Salvation, you know this, if you know Christ, it begins with the grace of God. It's his undeserved favor being poured out on guilty sinners as we put our trust in him by faith. It is his grace then and peace that will sustain us the rest of the journey. It's not just about going to heaven and being forgiven. It's the journey, and it's the same way. His grace is necessary. Faith is necessary. We will make it home one day, and it will be worth it all when we see him. So Peter closes with a greeting from fellow believers, likely from Rome. Some believe Babylon was a disguised reference to Rome that he used to protect the church there. But Peter mentions Mark, likely John Mark, sending his greeting. In verse 14, he finishes with a greeting, greet one another with a, a kiss of love. Peter wants the church to demonstrate affection to one another. This kiss was a sign of unity, of love, and affection when they met for worship. 
Obviously, it's not the idea of a passionate kiss between lovers. Rather, the greeting, which in our culture has typically been replaced by a hug, sometimes a handshake. Other cultures, it's a kiss on either side of the cheek. The point is, believers are to love each other and we're to express it and show affection. Peter ends with, Peace be to you all who are in Christ. And this peace is only possible for those who are born into God's family. The blessing and fellowship of the gospel rests on whether or not you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Apart from him, there can be no lasting peace. So as we end our study for the year, and I commend you all for hanging in there for all that we have learned and been blessed with, but I know it's, it's an effort and it's hard work, and I thank you for coming faithfully. And as we end our study for the year, I pray that you know him better. I will be praying that you will be at peace with him because of faith in his death on the cross. And if he's giving you that peace at the moment of salvation, then let us be vigilant to rest in that peace by casting all our cares on him, ladies. Lord, I thank you for these wonderful reminders and truths that we so desperately need, really, every day of the week, every hour of the day. I pray that we would commit to memory these verses that remind us that you're opposed to the proud, that your spirit would convict us when we're being proud, and that we would not be living our lives with having you oppose us. I pray that we would be women who actively take the burden that's flooding our minds even at this moment and throw it on you, Lord. I pray that we would obey these clear commands from your word and that we would be women clothed in humility, submissive in all the different roles that we find ourselves in 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 our lives, that we would be women of the word who give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.